Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 17, continuing our study in the book of Samuel. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word today and we give you thanks that through all these ages you have preserved the history of your people and the history of your mighty acts in the world. So we, we give you thanks that we can gather together and read this and hear this today. So give us your Holy Spirit uh, illumine us, open our ears, uh, open our minds. Father, we continue to pray for our sister Leanne. Be merciful to her, we pray. In all these things, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, here's the story we've been waiting for in our study of, uh, of First and Second Samuel, or First Samuel this summer. This is probably the most well-known account in both books of Samuel, the confrontation between David and Goliath. This may be the most well-known story in the whole Old Testament. And this is one of those stories that is so familiar to us that it's easy for us to assume that we know everything about it. We know all that it teaches. We've got this one, we've got this one down. And, and primarily, David and Goliath serve in our cultural conversation as, as this stand-in. Anytime that there's a, a brave little guy who's outnumbered or uh, he's outgunned or outskilled who brings down the oversized enemy against all odds, well, that's a, that's a David and Goliath story. We, we love to root for the underdog. And I'll tell you, if I, don't, if I don't have a dog in the fight and I'm watching a, a ball game and there are two teams I'll, I'll cheer for the underdog. I'll, I'll pull, for the, pull for the little guy. We love to root for the underdog. And this, this story seems to speak to that. So we hear it referred to often in sports and politics and history. And then when we hear it taught in church, often the surface application is, well, you need to be like David and you need to have courage to face your Goliaths. Whatever, whatever you're scared of, whatever bothers you, whatever is keeping you down, whether it's a low self-esteem or fear of closed spaces or whatever it is, you have to have courage to face your, 
your Goliaths. But, but when we read the story closely, especially now, having read everything up to this, verse by verse, line by line, we've read everything up to this story in 1 Samuel. When we see this in context, we see that the focus here is not on David's courage, It's not on David's own heroism. David is not a a Rocky Balboa. He's he's not a Rudy, you know, if you remember that movie. Uh, the, The emphasis is not on him stirring up or ginning up this kind of of courage, the the focus is on David's faith in God, and specifically David's faith in God's promises to his people, particularly as as his faithfulness contrasts the faithlessness of Israel, the faithlessness of Saul in in particular. So, So David is not victorious because he's more cunning or because he has more skill or he is a better, he has a better strategy than Goliath. David is victorious because he knows that God fights our battles and God fights our battles his way. In fact, God almost never does anything the way that we would do it. So so David is not intimidated here because he knows that God is going to protect and defend his people and he knows that he's going to do it in a way that probably nobody expects. So what do I have to lose, David must surely have thought for being, if I'm just faithful, I have, I have nothing to lose. When we saw David last time, he had just been anointed by Samuel. He'd been anointed to be the next king of Israel, even though he was the smallest of his brothers, even though he was the youngest. Uh, he uh, is anointed, and then he joins Saul's house to play the harp. He is Saul's armor bearer. He uh, is in the court of Saul. And whenever Saul is angry or depressed, Saul pulls out his lyre and he plays and he sings and that calms Saul's spirit. Here we're about to see David following in the steps of Jonathan. Remember so far, Jonathan has gone out and he's instigated warfare with the Philistines. Jonathan goes out and fights for Israel while Saul, the king, is sitting and sulking and not doing much of anything. David, now in this story, joins Jonathan in refreshing the conquest of the land of Canaan. Under Saul's faithlessness, what we have now is a land that has returned back to almost the situation we were in when we first came in under Joshua. Uh, Under Saul's faithlessness, the land has been given up, or at least is starting to be given up. Much of what Joshua has gained has been lost. We know that because now there's a giant in the land. This was was kind of a hallmark. This was kind of a, a, uh, a meter by which we knew how much we had owned and conquered the land. Remember, when the Israelite spies entered the land, they feared the giants. That was the number one thing that they were afraid of when when they came into the land and spied it out. Remember that? We can't go in there. Why? Because the land has, has giants in it. Even though it's a land flowing with milk and honey, we're scared of the giants. So after that unbelieving generation dies in the wilderness, the next generation to go in has to face these giants that their parents didn't want to face. And so God feeds them 
He kind of he gives them a, a, a gimme, just, a, just to do a dry run. Remember, he gives them Og, king of Bashan, whose bed was like 20 feet long on, on the western side of the Jordan. Before they even go in to take the land, they face Og, king of Bashan. By the way, which is like a great name for a giant, right? If you're a giant, I would like the name Og. That just sounds so giantish. Um, his bed was 14 feet long, not, not 20, 14 feet long. But... Well, I mean, at that point, it's just academic, right? It's just a big bed. Um, before they enter the land of promise, they come across Og, king of Bashan. And the Lord says, don't fear. You don't have to fear giants. They dispatch Og, king of Bashan, rather, rather quickly. They enter the land. And soon after Jericho and soon after Ai, Joshua goes and conquers Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Those are three cities full of men known as the Anakim. They are giants. The Anakim literally means long-necked ones. Uh, they're tall and they're big. And then remember Caleb, when he gets ready to retire, Joshua says, what do you want? Caleb says, I want that mountain, you know, the one with the giants on it. And Caleb goes up the mountain and he wipes out the mountain of the giants. And he says, I've got this daughter. And if anybody wants to marry her, he can go wipe out that fortress full of giants. And this man named Othniel came up and he wiped out the fortress full of giants and he married Aksa, uh, Caleb's daughter. And Othniel was the first judge of Israel as well. So we've got a lot of, of giant killing in the conquest of the land. We were scared to go into the land because of the giants, but we went in, second generation did, we wiped them out, we wiped them out of the cities, we wiped them off of the mountains, but now, since the days of Joshua, since Saul has been in command, we've got giants creeping back into the land. We have Gath, the hometown of Goliath. It is rebounded, and, and the Anakim are roaming the land again. We need new giant killers. We need a new Joshua. We need a new Caleb. We need a new Othniel. So David is going to take up that calling. He's going to take up that mantle. Not only that, not only is David a new Joshua, a new Othniel, a new Caleb, David is also a new Joseph. There are echoes of Joseph's story all over this account. Like Joseph, David takes care of his father's animals. Like Joseph, David's father sends him to his older brothers with food. Both Joseph and David are younger brothers chosen by God to be preeminent over their older brothers, but they are both mistreated and disrespected by their older brothers, and they both end up going to somebody else's house, right? Joseph goes to Potiphar's house. David ends up in Saul's house. Both of them, when they get to their new house, are met with injustice and mistreatment in their new house. And just as Joseph had to be faithful and patient until the Lord exalted him to a place of great authority, now we're, we're given this comparison so that David knows, and we know where we are in David's story, that David also is going to have to show patience and long-suffering under affliction and injustice before coming to the throne himself. That's why we have these echoes, and it's why it's important to know the stories. That's why it was important for David to know Joseph's story, so he could stop and he think, okay, wait a minute. I've seen this before. We've been here before, and we know what this is like. We know how we get through this. This is the benefit of knowing the story, that, that we're living out these things. And, and it's important for you to know, oh, wait, this situation that I'm in 
It's kind of like Jacob's story. Or, or, or maybe it's, it's a little bit like Samson. Or maybe a little bit like Gideon. It's so that you can know where you are and think, okay, what do we do next? What David's got to do next is he's got to be faithful. He's got to be courageous. He's got to be long-suffering. And he's going to have to expect a certain amount of mistreatment. And that's what David, of course, gets. Well, that kind of sets the table for the start of the chapter. As chapter 17 opens, the Philistine army comes out in battle array against Israel. The Philistines are camped on one mountain, and then the Israelites respond by camping on another mountain, and there is a valley in between. Why have the Philistines stirred themselves up to come out in battle array against Israel? They've had their backsides kicked repeatedly in 1 Samuel so far. What has given them the courage and the gall to now come back out in battle array? Well, people talk in the modern world just as much as the ancient world, and maybe even more in the ancient world, people would hear things and people would know that Saul was not well. Saul has not been behaving like a rational person. He's not a sane person. And so they might thought, well, maybe this is the time. This is our chance. Saul's a little weak. He's going soft around the edges. And now this is our chance to attack. There is unease in Israel about the future. Maybe this is the time to strike. And so they gather and then they send out their champion, their mightiest warrior, Goliath from Gath. His height is six cubits and a span. A cubit is 18 inches, so he's six of those. And a span is a, a grown man's thumb to his little finger when he stretches out his hand. That's a span. It's about nine inches. And so if you're doing the math, uh, Goliath is about nine feet and nine inches tall, which would put him, is this a 12-foot ceiling? You know, anybody? Construction? Is this 10-foot ceiling? What is it? About 12? Okay. Just... He'd probably scrape those lights, or at least that. That's 10 feet over there. So just think about as tall as that, that overhang right there, just to put it in perspective. And you think, how could a human that size ever exist? How could somebody be that tall? NBA players aren't that tall. Manute Bull was 7'7". Yao Ming was 7'6". Robert Wadlow, the, the man who's in the uh, Guinness Book of World Records as the biggest man to exist in modern history, he's 8'11". Robert Wadlow was. We're talking about a man who's 9'6". How could this be possible? Uh, these numbers must be wrong. Well, just about every culture on earth, from the American Indians to uh, the, the, the Chinese to, to other cultures, have records and oral histories of races of giant people living in antiquity. And they, there have been various archaeological discoveries in places like France where they found bones of humans that might have been more than 11 feet tall. Uh, don't trust what I say. Go do your research and study it for yourself. Uh, study it uh, on your own. But the Bible doesn't record his height as if it were this symbol. It's just this fact. He is he is tall. He is nine, nine, uh, at least. It's, it's a fact. So we get this, this huge human being, and then we get details about Goliath's armor. Goliath wore a bronze helmet, and his armor is described as scale armor. That verse 5, it says he had a coat of mail. That was literally, in the Hebrew, a scale armor. Now, what do we think of when we think of scales? Well, serpents have scales. 
he has this armor that's like rings or, or scallops. So he's covered in scales like a serpent. And when a serpent comes into the garden, well, we have to uh, drive him out. We also read that he has iron weapons. Who else have we read so far has iron weapons? Only Saul. Remember, when the Philistines formerly oppressed Israel, nobody could learn the trade of blacksmithing. They had to take all of their iron implements to the Philistines to be fixed or to be sharpened. Nobody in Israel uh, had any iron implements and they didn't have any iron weapons and they, they couldn't make them either. Only Saul, we read, had an iron sword and an iron spear. Saul is the only one with weapons to match those of the giant. Saul also, incidentally, was Israel's giant. When we meet Saul, he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel. This is the man that God gave them to fight the giants who are going to appear. And yet Saul, with his iron weapons, with his height and physical strength, is not fighting Goliath. He won't do it. Even in the face of Goliath's taunts and cheers and blasphemies, um, Saul makes a deal and he says, you know, I'll, I'll give somebody else uh, uh, all this treasure if they'll go fight this man. Well, Goliath, he comes out and, and he tries to set up a deal of his own. He says, anybody who comes out to fight me, I'll, I'll fight. And if he kills me, the Philistines will be your servants. But if, if I kill your champion, you will be our servants. How do you like that? Let's, uh, let's set that up this way. Those are the rules of the game. And when Saul and the people of God hear this, they're afraid. They don't believe that the Lord can get them through this. And again, we see this cultural amnesia once again that we've seen before. They've forgotten all of the giants that God's people have defeated to get to this point. They don't remember any of this. And that kind of brings us to verse 12. So let's pick up from, uh, from verse 12. David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years, in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. For 40 days and for 40 nights, Goliath comes out of his tent. He puts on his armor. He puts his, his sword on his belt. And he comes and shouts his challenge across the valley. And for 40 days, Israel is left trembling because of this giant, just like they were trembling over giants for 40 years and 40, uh, 40 years in the wilderness. Now they're, they're trembling here for 40 days uh, because of this giant. Again, we're, we're crying out and we're, we're, the, the situation is screaming for a Joshua to come and appear and push out these giants. And Saul's not the man for the job. He's not going to do it. It seems like somebody would get fed up with this, being taunted and jeered for 40 days in a row. You might take it for five days, but on day seven or day 12 or day 15 or day 25, somebody might step up. But it doesn't. Nobody does. It goes on and it goes on and on. And nobody stops the mouth of this blasphemer. Verse 17. 
Then Jesse said to his son David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these 10 loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. So it sounds like every day they kind of come out in array and Goliath marches forward, makes his threat, goes back, nothing happens, and they they go back to their uh, tents for the night. Here's one of the first clues that we get, and we're going to get several of these clues. David is the anti-Saul. What is David doing here? He's bringing food to the army, gifts from his father, yes, but he's feeding the army of the Lord. Remember just a couple of chapters ago, Saul was cutting them off from the produce of the land that God had provided. But David brings milk, well, he brings cheese, which is stable milk that you can carry with you. It's hard to carry milk in a saddlebag or in your pocket, so you carry cheese. And he brings bread, just as Jonathan availed himself of the honey that was flowing in the land. Now, now David brings food to God's army. This is something Saul didn't do. Saul withheld the blessings from the army. Verse 21, for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Well, just like, um, well, rather than going out and fighting the battle himself, Saul, as I said, puts up this bounty and says, anybody who kills this giant will get great riches. He will win my daughter's hand. You can marry my daughter. And his whole house will be exempted from taxes in Israel. That's a pretty sweet deal unbelievable riches, you get the girl, and you get freedom from the IRS for the rest of your life, for your whole family, for your whole house. How do you turn that down? I mean, just at least let me get a shot. Let me go a couple rounds with this guy just to see if it'll work. But nobody has stepped up. In what is about to take place, though, we see David not only echoing Joshua and Joseph, but also David is reflecting his greater son, Jesus, and shows us what Jesus will do. Remember, Jesus is born under the curse. Jesus is born under a cowardly tyrant, Herod, but Jesus defeats the giant. Jesus defeats the serpent, the dragon, and Jesus is blessed with all the riches of glory. Jesus wins the girl, doesn't he? He wins his bride, the church, and he rolls back the curse. Now, David is going to show us how his son, Jesus, is, is going to do it. This is, this is all gospel stuff that David does here as he shows us the works of Jesus, uh, even long before Jesus came. Verse 26, David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner saying, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, why did you come down here, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle." Well, Jesus, when Jesus steps up to be the champion of Israel, when Jesus steps up to do what nobody else can do, what nobody else will do, which is die for the sins of the world, when Jesus steps up, does his, do his older brothers cheer him on? No, his older brothers, the Pharisees, ridicule him. They make accusations against him. They say he's a son of his father, the devil. Well, just like Jesus had to put up with criticism and accusation from his older brothers, just like Joseph was abused by his older brothers, so David is accused by his older brother, specifically the older brother who was passed over for the anointing by Samuel. Remember, Eliab was a tall man too, and that's why when Samuel sees him, he says, oh yeah, this is the one, this is the one we, we have, but it, it wasn't to be. So is Eliab bitter about being passed over? And, and if so, why doesn't he take all that frustration out on the giant instead of David? Maybe we see here why Eliab wasn't chosen because this is his attitude and it's rotten. It's terrible. This is his attitude. You don't get to be king. You don't get to be anything. Uh, before all that is said and done here, uh, David is actually going to have to face three giants, three tall guys, Eliab, Saul, and Goliath. And we'll, we'll see this at the end. But uh, this is the first giant that David has to face. And it's, older, it's his older brother making these accusations of, I see what's in your heart. Didn't he hear Samuel in the living room of his house say that the Lord only looks on the heart and doesn't look on the, the outside appearance like man does, that only God can see the heart. That's what Samuel said as, as he was at uh, his, his house. And now here is Eliab saying, I know what's in your heart. He doesn't know what's in his heart. He can't even pretend to. Verse 29. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? When, when David heard Goliath's slurs and threats and blasphemies, David thought, who gets to talk this way about God's people? Isn't there a big enough reward? What's the problem? Why hasn't anybody done anything about this? Verse 30. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for them. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. You're a kid, and he's been killing men since he was your age. You're not gonna stand a chance. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. 
Moreover, David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and Yahweh be with you. Remember, Samson also tore apart a lion. Samson tore apart a lion in a vineyard. And lions are often associated with the Philistines, where we get this lion imagery. And Philistines, of course, are descended from the Egyptians who have the Sphinx. There's all this lion-like imagery about the, the Philistines. Well, David says, I'm not afraid of this new Philistine lion in God's vineyard. I've killed lions before, like Samson. And so, uh, by the way, I've also killed a bear. He says, I, I grabbed it by the beard. Can you imagine, of all things, hey, there's a lion with a sheep in its mouth. I kind of like that sheep. I'm going to go grab the lion by the mane, and let's just see what happens from there. Uh, that's what I do, though. I protect my father's sheep. That's what I'm all about. I protect the sheep, and if it means killing a lion or killing a bear, I know the Lord will deliver me, <laughs> and, he, and he did. Well, David is a new, David is a new Samson. Again, you see all these layers of, of, uh, of, of story all on top of each other. Verse 30, um, 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Saul doesn't try to stop David, but he does try to clothe David with his royal armor, which also has scale armor. It's also a, a coat of mail. What kind of king gives up his armor to a kid? It's like if somebody's breaking in your house and you say, son, son, boy, nine-year-old, eight-year-old, you take the gun. I'm going to be behind the couch. You deal with whatever's out there. I'll be back here behind the sofa if you need me. That's, what, that's, that's how pitiful and pathetic this is, what Saul is doing. He's putting his armor on the kid, and it shows us where Saul's head is at. Goliath has this fine armor, and so the only way we're going to defeat a guy like this is by acting like him, wearing the same thing. Yahweh's intervention and Yahweh's miraculous deliverances are not part of Saul's thinking at this point. He thinks, well, you fight the Lord's battles just like you fight everybody else's battles. You have to act like the kings of the nations. And so the only way that we can fight is to be dressed up like Goliath. But David refuses to look like the kings of the nations. And instead, he's going to go out like a shepherd with a stick, his shepherd's staff, his sling, and some rocks. Now, why rocks? Well, Goliath has committed blasphemy, and David is going to go out and stone him to death. That's what you do with blasphemers. You stone them, and so this is what uh, David is about to do. And here's another way that David is the anti-Saul. This is another way where David usurps Saul and deliberately contrasts him. Saul is a Benjamite. He's the son of Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin. And in Judges, we read that the Benjamites were known for their skill with what weapon? With, with the sling. They were left-handed, slingshot, uh, precision marksmen. That's what the Benjamites were known for. Instead, we see here our Benjamite king is not the one with the sling. He's not the one defending us. But David, Benjamin means son of my right hand. David is the true son of the right hand. Saul doesn't have a sling. Saul has a spear. And throughout the rest of the book, he's going to look more like Goliath than he is a true son of Israel or a true Benjamite. David is here the true Benjamite. Verse 40, 
It's David, he took his staff in his hand, he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand. Five smooth stones, which of course represent the five points of Calvinism. Right there, it's right there. <laughs> it's so obvious. You're laughing, he chose for himself five smooth stones, right? No, probably not. Um, why does the Holy Spirit tell us that he picked up five smooth stones, though? Well, there are five cities of Philistia. There is that. It may be symbolic of his desire to conquer all of Philistia. The, the answer I like most is that in 2 Samuel, later we find out that Saul, ha I'm sorry, Goliath has four giant brothers or cousins. There are four more giants roaming the land. Well, I, I'm going to have a rock for this one, but if these others show up, I'm going to have a rock for them, too. Uh, but later... David's mighty men killed those other, other giants. But David is prepared to deal with Goliath and any other giants that show up. The stones that he picks up, and I always read this story and I think, well, it must be like those little pebbles or those little flat rocks you skip when you go to the lake or you go to the pond and you find these little uh, rocks. A friend of mine picked up a rock from a riverbed in uh, Israel and he brought it back with him on a, on a trip. And uh, the, the riverbed rocks in this part of the world are these, are, are these big, uh, brown, misshapen stones about the size of a potato. They're, they're a, like a handful. The, the stones that he picked up were likely not these little bitty pebbles, but something about the size of a baked potato. About five of those he puts in his uh, bag. It's a hefty weapon. You don't want to get knocked in the head with a rock uh, that's shaped like a potato. Uh, it, it would end your day. And that's what happens. Verse 41. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him. Goliath has a shield bearer, David does not. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Well, you said it, not, not I. Am I a dog? Yeah, you are. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods who are who are Goliath's gods? Who is his main god? Dagon. We'll see that in a minute. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, Yahweh will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will, give the carcasses of the, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that Yahweh does not save with sword and spear for the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him 
and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Uh, I thought that Goliath said that if he was defeated, that Pharisee, the, the, the Philistines would be the servants of Israel. But that's not how it works out. I guess they lied about that because they all flee. As David draws near to Goliath, he starts running. And as he's running, he starts whipping his sling. He gets a stone. He gets it going. Estimates are that you could get one of those slings, uh, at least a projectile flying out of a sling, going about 100 or 150 miles an hour. He lets it fly, and the stone hits Goliath right between the eyes. And just like Dagon falls on his face before the Lord, so Goliath falls on his face before the servant of the Lord. And just like Dagon lost his head in his temple, Goliath has his head crushed and separated from his body. Psalm 115 says, all those who worship idols will become like them. And so those who worship Dagon fall over and get their head removed from their body, just like Dagon. Uh, Goliath is a good Dagon worshiper. He follows his God. Verse 52. Now when the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Ekron, the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'araim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The defeat of Goliath sends the Philistines into panic and chaos again. David rallied the men to battle, so they chased the Philistines far away, and David has two spoils from this war. He takes the head of the giant, and he sends it to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a Hebrew city at this time in history. David has to conquer uh, Jerusalem later and kick the Jebusites out. Why does he send the head of Goliath to the city of Jerusalem? Well, maybe this is a warning. I intend to have that city. That's going to be my city. That's going to be my capital. And this is what's going to happen to all of you. This is a warning. You remember Goliath? Well, this is his head. And this is going to happen to you if you don't vacate. This is also the city. Of course, Jerusalem is the city where David's greater son, Jesus, is going to crush the serpent's head at the place of the skull at a place called Golgotha, which is where Goliath's head is said to have been buried. Uh, Jesus is crucified on the mountain over which uh, Goliath's head is interred for all eternity. And there is Jesus with his foot wounded over the head of the serpent whose head was crushed there on, on the mountain. Uh, and this all comes back around in the Gospels. David also not only takes Goliath's head, but he takes Goliath's sword and his armor. And those are going to end up in the tabernacle of meeting later on in uh, 1 Samuel 21. So David, here's an anti-Saul again. He's not taking the spoils of war for himself. He's not sparing the pagan king. Unlike Saul, David gives everything up. He doesn't, he doesn't have to keep anything for himself. And Samuel doesn't have to come along later and clean up after David the way he always has to come clean up after Saul. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 55. So when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, 
Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, that sounds kind of odd that Saul is all of a sudden asking, whose son is this? Who, who is this? Because he's already been to Saul's court to play the lyre and to sing. He's already tried on Saul's armor. Why is Saul asking, who is this? Shouldn't you already know? Well, it seems like he's asking uh, more intently now. Who, I need to find out more about this guy uh, because he's going to marry my daughter. His family is going to be free of taxes in Israel. And I need to know, I need to know much more. I need to have more intel on this, on this group of people who are now going to be so close to my house. Well, that's how it ends. And not only is this the first big episode of David's life, but right away we notice that here we have a man who doesn't fear other men. The only thing that David fears, the only one that David fears is Yahweh. Men have their insults and their opinions and they have their accusations. Men have their boxes that they want to shove David into, but he doesn't have time for any of that because he answers only to the Lord. And these guys, these big guys with their big mouths only stand in the way of him obeying the Lord. They're just distractions. As I said, Goliath isn't the only big mouth and he's not the only bully that David had to put up with. He had to put up with three giants in this text. The first giant, his brother, Eliab, he pretends that he can see David's heart. He's discerned David's motives. I know why you're up here. You've left your little flock of sheep and you just wanted to come up and see some action. You wanted to come see a spectacle and you've slacked in your duty to our father. He sneers at him and he treats him like a worthless brat. Now, if you put yourself in David's position, this is my big brother telling me this, you might have cowered a little bit. You might have shrank a little bit inside. You might have spun into a cycle of doubt and self-criticism. But Eliab is a Satan here. He's playing the role of Satan pretty well. He's an accuser and he's bringing up things that are absolutely false and not worth giving a moment of time to. David ignores his brother. He keeps walking. And that's exactly what this kind of guy deserves. He doesn't deserve the time of day. The second giant was Saul. And Saul had in his mind, this is what a fighting man is supposed to look like. Here's the box. Here's what we do. You wear armor. You carry a sword. It doesn't matter that Saul is 6'5 and David is like 5'11 with boots on. It doesn't matter that he can't wear the armor that Saul has made for him. It doesn't matter that Saul and David are gifted differently in the mind of Saul. Saul has this very wooden idea of how God is going to do this thing. And curiously, Saul doesn't believe enough in his own theory to actually go try it out himself, right? He just has enough faith in it to make David follow this path. I have to wonder if Saul had suited up and had gone out there, would, would God have blessed Saul? I mean, he was the giant of Israel. Saul was the one who was given the iron sword to go do this and he didn't do it. I wonder... Might God have blessed him, but we don't know. Here Saul has this worldly secular idea of how God blesses warfare and he tries to squeeze David into this. David goes along at first, you know, this is the king. I've got to respect you. But when it's obvious that this isn't going to work out, I can't even, I can't even move in this stuff. I can't, I can't do what I'm supposed to do. He says respectfully, I can't wear this. I'm not going to do it this way. I have to fight the way I am built to fight. 
And I don't respect Saul so much that I'm going to ignore what God has given me to do. And then, of course, the third giant is Goliath himself. Goliath is a fountain of spite. Goliath is a fountain of blasphemy. He's a volcanic eruption of snark and ridicule and criticism. Who do you think you are coming out here? You think I'm a dog? You come out here with a stick and a sling? He does what Satan always does. Goliath does what Satan does, and that's to try to make you feel stupid when you're trying to be faithful. This is Satan's play. Satan takes the right thing, the good thing, and he twists it to try to make you feel awkward and dumb and make you feel like it's not worth trying. Satan tries to suck all the wind out of your sails when you are being faithful. And that's what Goliath attempts. He tries to suck all the wind out of David's sails. He tries to take all the air out of his balloon. But we see how all this ends up. Eliab says, you're a brat and you have an evil heart. Saul says, real men fight this way. This is how you do it. Goliath says, you're little and you don't belong out here. Every one of them in the end are revealed to be wrong and ignorant. David is exactly the one Yahweh wants to deliver his people. Yahweh brings deliverance through a man that everyone discounts and everyone marginalizes. Don't overlook the fact that every one of these men who are talking Eliab, Saul, Goliath, they're all talking with big words. None of them have done anything in this story. None of them have accomplished anything here. (laughs) It's easy to talk. It's easy to criticize. It's much harder to actually do something. I'm afraid we live in a generation where it's very easy to tear things down. We can tear things down all day. It's very hard to actually build something. It's very, very difficult to actually do something. And that's what David does. And he shows them all to be the fools that they are. What this shows us is that it doesn't matter if it looks on the surface like like we're doing the right thing to people whose priorities are warped to begin with. It doesn't matter if you have the right weapons. It matters if you have the right God. If you fear God more than men, you're going to be just fine. In fact, all the things you could point to as your inadequacies, all the reasons you think, I can't do that, I can't be faithful in that way, are precisely those things that qualify you for serving God. Because his strength shines most gloriously against the backdrop of our weakness and against the backdrop of our frailties. And of course, everything that we say of David here is ultimately true of Jesus. Through the weakness of human flesh, through the shame and the cruelty of the cross, our life, our future, our communion with the Father was purchased in a way that no one else could, in a way that no one could believe it would happen, in a way that nobody could see it happening. Jesus' own brothers doubted and scoffed and wagged their heads, but it was precisely the way that Jesus brought down the serpent and he achieved our victory over sin and over death and over the devil. Jesus is our champion who faces down the giant and wins the battle. And his church, his people follow him fighting exactly the way he did through the shame and through the ridicule and through the accusation, remaining faithful, remaining courageous in the Lord, fearing God 
more than men. That's what makes David different. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your servant David, and we praise you for his son Jesus. We pray that you would cause this story to marinate in us, that you would cause us to continue to think and and dwell and meditate on the way that you have uh, restored and preserved and kept your people. So Father, uh, guide us by your Holy Spirit, we pray, as not only we continue worshiping now, but as we continue to live for you all this week, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.